Good morning, Dr. Philip George. Good morning, Belle. Good morning, JD. How are you guys doing? We're, We're good. good. Yeah, uh, Thank sleepy. You. Yeah. Sleepy. <laughs> too much football. You need to help me diagnose that exactly one these days. Whether too much football is bad. You're going to learn to be a loser. Oh, what? oh wow. my goodness. These Liverpool fans, I tell you. My goodness. <laughs> well, let's get to our first article before we have an argument in here. <laughs> the experts at the Tokyo University are combining machine learning with brain imaging tools to redefine the standard for diagnosing mental illnesses. Mm. Now, doctor, we understand that at this moment, there's no blood test or genetic test or any kind of, um, you know, machine test that can accurately diagnose mental illness. Mm. So would these AI help in properly diagnosing mental illness? Well, actually, psychiatry relies on phenomenology. Uh, and that's basically symptoms and signs to come to a diagnosis. So we have diagnostic criteria like the DSM-5 and the ICD-10 that determine the symptoms and signs that a certain condition is needed to have to make a diagnosis. It's the same for some medical conditions like migraine. You don't do a scan or, a, you know, put your stethoscope on somebody's head and say you got migraine. I wish somebody could find a machine <laughs> to do that. Though, yeah. But you need, you need six out of a list of 13 symptoms and for a certain period of time. And by using this, you can actually come to a diagnosis that is as accurate as 95%. So criteria is almost as good as using machines. Now, I think these researchers in Japan have actually identified that you can top it up with, you know, adding on these scans to help, you know, not only just use the criteria alone, but combine that together with scans. Because we now notice that there are subtle changes in people with certain disorders. So if you use the algorithms, um, use the criteria, but then add on a scan, uh, you might actually then move from 95% to maybe 98%. Wow. Would this AI in future be able to treat mental illness properly? Yeah, so <laughs> we might be out of a job if that happens. <laughs> uh, but AI may provide the choices for treatment, including medication, you know, whatever is best suited after going through all the algorithms in relation to the patient's characteristics and uh, but in psychiatry, it's always a holistic approach. It's biopsychosocial, and you know, in my own practice and in my teaching, I believe that the interview itself is therapeutic. So the way that you build a relationship with your patient can sometimes be treatment, part of treatment. Uh, in my first interview with my patients, very often they go back feeling relieved and feeling a bit, you know, better in terms of their symptoms. Of course, that's temporary, uh, but it's because of that relationship you build as a therapist. And I don't think AI will be able to do that. I mean, even during this period of the COVID when people are doing online therapy, it's not the same as face-to-face -face being together with a therapist. And yeah, so I think there are, a lot, there are a lot that needs to still catch up with in terms of AI. So you're not in favor of? I'm not saying I'm not in favor. I think it can help, but I don't think it, it can take over. All right. Our next article is about technology use. Now, obsessive technology use, like excessive use of the internet, social media, digital gaming, smartphones, is a mental health disorder, doctor. Mm. But how do we classify too much or obsessive yeah. use? Actually, technology overuse is now identified as a common risk factor for mental health problems. 
And this may actually explain why we're seeing higher prevalence numbers among teenagers and young adults. The key word, of course, is overuse. Balance use can actually prove to be beneficial. So, you know, I think we now need to understand what is overuse. Professor Larry Rosen of the California State University actually described eye disorder. You know, you got an eye this, an eye that. Oh, right. Uh, so this is <laughs> eye disorder as where you exhibit signs and symptoms of a psychiatric disorder like OCD, narcissism, addiction, ADHD, depression, anxiety, due to overuse of technology. I mean, I don't know if it'll come into the DSM-6. Yeah, but overuse is basically characterized by, not by time, but by increased use and being unable to switch off. It's like an addiction. You have even withdrawals on stopping. You feel restless and uncomfortable or moody and depressed when you you try and cut down or you want to stop. You lose sense of time. You're all, you know, sort of engrossed in it and you neglect other needs. Uh, And then you get preoccupied uh, even when you're not with it, you know, constantly thinking about it. And of course, it jeopardizes other things. You know, it, it makes you maybe have risky behavior, you're using your mobile while you're crossing the street or mm. while you're driving or, you know, when you're at work, you're not able to get things complete because you're busy with your tech. So it jeopardizes things in your day-to-day life as well. And that is overuse, basically. Oh, okay, so there's no time frame. Yeah. No, no, there's no time frame. I mean, if you're on a holiday and you think, you know, I just want to spend my time catching up on all this social media stuff, uh, then that's not overuse. Right. You know, you've got the time allotted for it. But if it's on a daily basis and it's interfering with everything else in your life, which is our mantra in psychiatry, I mean, it has to have an impact on your social and occupational functioning. Right. So when before, that happens, yeah, then... Before it's categorized as yeah. a mental disorder. Yeah. But yeah. is there uh, an age where people get more hooked on it? Are kids more hooked on it? Is it more girls than boys? Well, actually, it's... Largely among millennials, and of course, it can go throughout their lifespan because, you know, they've embraced it more than other generations have. Girls seem to be more prone to overuse social media. Right. But boys are more prone to have problem with uh, overuse of video games. Right. Mm -mm. Okay. So gaming becomes a big thing among boys and girls is more social media. Actually, a Korean study of 74,980 high school students actually showed that problematic internet use was linked to suicidal ideas. Wow. Wow. But also for depression and high risk of internet addiction. You know, so most studies actually report children and young adults because of their overuse actually at higher risk of developing mental health problems. Now, this next article is very interesting, Doctor, because uh, drawing actually helped this person who wrote this article cope Mm -hmm. with his own mental illness. So the question here is, can art serve as therapy for adults suffering from depression and anxiety? Actually, at the clinic I work, we have an art therapist and uh, many patients report finding significant help through therapy with her. Art therapy is actually a method of creative expression to foster healing and mental well-being. It can be used as a medium to help patients communicate or overcome stress or even explore different aspects of their own personality. When we went to Nepal post-earthquake for a relief mission, we brought along art blocks, crayons and paint as this was very useful, especially for children to express their trauma and stress. The American Art Therapy Association characterizes art therapy as an approach to mental health that utilizes processes of 
creating art to improve mental, physical and emotional wellness. So essentially it is a fantastic complementary treatment. But on its own, it can actually work for mild conditions as well. But I mean, if you don't particularly like drawing <laughs> or if you're a bad drawer, <laughs> will it still work? So your art actually gives you <laughs> mental problems. Yeah, right? it's yeah. like, oh no, I'm not drawing it good enough, you know? Yeah. You're not you're not doing this drawing for an exhibition. <laughs> it is to relieve pressure and stress. Yeah. Right. So the you know the final product I don't think is as important as how you engage in that whole activity. Even if you don't like drawing, it can still work as a therapy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, art therapy is usually specific to things like drawing, painting, sculpture, and maybe collage. Uh, but there are other therapies like singing. Mm. Singing is effective in managing stress and can be used as complementary treatment to managing mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. Similar to singing is laughing. You know, I think we discussed that yeah. a few shows ago. And both of these actually stimulate the release of oxytocin, which is a hormone that can help alleviate stress and enhance feelings of trust and bonding. Uh, writing is especially useful if it's done regularly in the form of maybe journaling. Mm. You know, so not just doodling and that becomes art therapy then, but uh, writing your own thoughts and feelings helps you to understand them more clearly and it helps to gain control of your emotions and overall mental health then. Is this a left brain, uh, left brain kind of thing? Because... Um, one side is logic, one side is the artsy part of your yeah. brain. This is just to express your feelings more. Is it just to get it out there? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things. But uh, when it comes to singing and to, you know, laughter, it also has a hormonal impact. So it has an impact on your body. It does the same thing that, you know, maybe breathing exercises do as well. Huh. Okay, so singing helps you mentally. But some people singing actually yeah. gives me mental disturbance. <laughs> yeah, all right, but that's a whole other story. Okay, I hope you are not talking about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> now, this next one says that one in four people aged 18 to 24 seriously contemplated suicide before. Mm. Now, college students seem to be especially vulnerable to mental health issues compared to other age groups. And expert actually believes that colleges should be investing more in mental health services during, especially during these COVID times, right? Yeah. So how important are therapy sessions uh, for our students in private and public colleges here in Malaysia? Yeah, so this study is actually by the CDC in the US and it suggests that during the pandemic, suicidal ideas and attempts have actually risen, especially among late teens and early adults and more so in college and uni students. So accessibility and availability of mental health services in institutions of higher learning in Malaysia are just as equally important. Mm. We know that suicide is actually the second most common cause of death among young adults in the Asia-Pacific region. So it's not just unique to, you know, some developed country. It's second to motor vehicle accidents, of course. Wow. And it's only on the rise, and we need to reach out and provide support and help to those in need. In my uni, we have a counselling unit, we have peer programs, we have a mental health hotline, uh, we have a club called the Mind Matters Club, and all this is helping to empower people, especially the young, uh, in their mental health. And we know that at this age, it's a transition between to being independent, mm -mm. being on their own, making decisions, and also you know, taking on all this extra work they have in uni and, you know, with all the exams and everything else as well. Okay, but um, I'm just wondering, do the youth 
of this age face similar like stresses and mental challenges with the youth during the World War II, global mm. recession and all that. How is it different now compared to before? Well, I think the biggest cause of stress in young people now includes one, exam stress, the need to perform and like, succeed. And the education system seems to be piling on pressure on the young to succeed. This is emphasized even if it's not explicitly by immediate family mm. and relatives, you know. The comparison, my son's doing medicine, my daughter's doing this. And, you know, all of that has a huge impact on young children and their expectations as well. Finding work is also not as easy as it used to be. Automation machinery seems to have reduced some opportunities. So young people need to upskill or excel. They need to be in top of the class to expect to get a good job or, you know, maybe do two degrees instead of one. Family sizes is also shrinking and that leads to parents expecting more from their children. You know, sometimes it's unrealistic because, you know, the parents come from a mediocre background. They haven't been the top in the class, but they expect their child to be right. number mm. one. Yeah. Mm. Of course, there's a double income family, which creates reduced interactions and a sense of aloneness. And finally, social media and technology, they are huge influences in this age group. And you know, that FOMO effect, comparing themselves with others, all of that, you know, creates a huge amount of stress. So all of all these factors are very different from what youth in the World War Two and global recession periods, you know, encountered. So basically, are you saying that they're getting worse as time goes on. They're piling on, yeah. Absolutely, they're getting worse and they're piling on, yeah.